Hey everybody, welcome to the Disciple Makers Podcast brought to you by discipleship.org. I'm your host, Dave Stovall, and I've got to apologize to you because I straight up lied. In the last episode, I said we were done with all the track sessions from last year's forum. I just found four more sessions from one of our sponsors, actually, Sustainable Discipleship. So we're going to dive into these four episodes before moving forward. Doug Burrier from Sustainable Discipleship talked with us about the three-hour disciple. I know that sounds a little advantageous, so let me break that down for you. That means three hours a week. Doug dissects what those three hours look like and the strategies that they use to be successful in making disciples in a very sustainable way. So let's jump in and let's hear what Doug had to say. Enjoy the episode. We seem to run out of time, so I know people may be coming, but I'm going to start. And I'm going to start with any questions that you have that I will remember to repeat into this microphone. That you said about the hats. Hats. Sick. What is the name of the book I said that will change the way you lead meetings and groups? Six Thinking Hats. I was just repeating it. I wasn't asking you. (laughs) Six, Six Thinking Hats by Edward De Bono, D, little E, big B, O, N, O. Anything else? What are the three biggest reasons people fail to implement? We could say any discipleship thing, but he was specifically asking about this method. Okay. I had somebody ask me during the break, but what do we do with them? Like there's no material. And I realize if you haven't gotten this yet, we're doling this out in pieces The material is the Bible. I know, it's shocking. It's the Bible cover to cover. In the next session, we're going to show you how we get people, we set them free to enjoy God's word and they do it on their own. Got it? So, but the question is, what three things derail? Hold yours. What three, when senior leadership will not make disciples? Simple. If your boss won't make disciples, you're going to have to go grassroots, rogue. You're going to have to do it under the radar. Because when you start making disciples, if your leaders, senior leaders don't make disciples, there's going to, almost inevitably, there's a reason, there's a flaw. So it could be narcissism. We're all pastors. Be honest, right? We're in ministry. So either if we're not making disciples, we're too busy. We got our eyes off the ball. We don't remember the call. Something. So there's probably something in me that could improve. So if my staff starts making disciples, they're knocking it down. What's going to be the next thing that happens? There's going to become conflict. And it's okay. Probably the Holy Spirit's doing it. But if I don't change my ways, what's going to happen? So probably the number one thing that will prevent you from making disciples within the church, the ecclesia, is going to be if the people at the top don't want to do it. But you're still responsible to God to do it. So figure it out. The second thing that will break this is the adaptation. I think it's just the adaptation. When people, but you know, you don't understand our culture. I do not. When you say, you don't know my culture. You don't understand where I'm at. You're exactly right. But this method is not dependent on your culture. It's just how Jesus made disciples, how God made disciples, how people think that works in any culture. You get that. There's things you can't say in Latin America that you can say here. There's things I can say to this man who we've kind of built a little bit of trust that I I can't say to Larry. 
And I definitely wouldn't say to you because we just don't know each other. And you're a lady. Let's just accept it. It's not bad. Over time, there'd be no difference, but now there is. But this, so is. There's this this urge to like, but you got it's got to be adapted to our culture. It's got to fit us. And when you do that, it's fine. Do whatever you want, but your numbers are going to go down. I, I, I we always say we can guarantee you ninety percent, but I can only guarantee you ninety percent if you do the method. And you, it's going to improve just because you know what you're doing. Uh, do you kind of, oh yeah, do we push them ahead? That's a great question. Yeah, you guys are great. So for those of you who are very orderly and you're like, we can't follow you, I open the floor for questions. You just got to go, okay? So his question was, we do a three-year thing, which sometimes is four, but we do a three-year thing. So if we see somebody who's like, who's really following God? Like you read the Bible every day, you're smart. Anybody? None of you? All right, cool. All right, Mark is. So so Mark comes in and he's all experienced and he says he wants to do discipleship. In other words, do I advance him to like discipleship two or three? But we have tried every combination of this. And what we found out is if Mark is really as mature as Mark is, he will love discipleship one. Because what happens is this. In this method, we are doing very specific things in year one that make you successful in year two. And it's hard to, I could, we've even tried to short circuit new staff members. We'll just do a six month track. Tim, how has this worked out for us? <laughs> yeah. So we just go, it's okay, man. So Mark, God told you to be on staff. That's great. Get in discipleship. If he's too heady to do discipleship one, we've made a hiring error. Does that make sense? So it, we just can't. And what we found is these really deep spiritual godfathers and godmothers that we have love discipleship. They just walk along, and if they already know it, they just walk along, and they're like, hey, you're awesome. <laughs> they just cheer. They make your job easier. Does that make sense? That's a great question. So to progress in each, we would call them phases, of discipleship, one, two, and three, is it the disciple's choice or the disciple's choice? And the answer is yes. <laughs> so um, we have people check out. We do everything we can to not get them to check out. Most people check out between years two and three. Just so you know, it's only 5% of people. But most of them, in that 5%, check out between year two and three. And so this is, the, you have this in your hand. This is the pathway. Year, year two and three transitions right about here. Consecrated is the natural phase wrap. This is not we. This is not our pathway to get people there. This is go track a thousand disciples in the Bible, out of the Bible, and every one of them does this, and almost every time in the same exact order. Okay, we're gonna. This is what this whole session's about. When you understand this, you can identify where they're at. You know exactly what to give them to get to the next place. You know how to pray. Discipleship becomes easy. There is no more guessing. It is just simple. Okay, so this stage of consecrated, in poker we call it all in. And we lose people between two and three. That's the biggest place we lose them because it's not us. We're not calling to be all in. It's just God's growing them. And, and it's like you either, man, you either throw away the idols and the rest of whatever you got and say, I'm yours, or you don't. They'll take themselves out. So yes. Do we say you can't go forward? 
Yes, but we do it long before we get to the end of the year. So if you're not doing the work, if you're not reading, then there is no discipleship. If you're not bathed in God's word, there is no discipleship. It's not happening. So we do what we call, and don't ever tell them this, because they use it as an excuse, so don't. This was our mistake between five and six. We let them know what was behind the curtain. It's called building an off-ramp. Because we don't want to discourage people when they are not really involved in this act of discipleship. We build an off-ramp. And we just go, like, it's clearly not working for you. There's a thousand ways to be a disciple. This formal thing's not working right now. How about we just have coffee? And that, we're getting them out of the group. Because it's not working for them. It's just a waste of their time. Okay? And they become part of that 5%. Does that make sense? So long before I get to the end of the year, if you're, so, secret, Doug Curtin, this is the subset curtain. If you came to my group, and the very first time you came to my group, I would say this to you. If you're not attending, tithing, and serving, I will not disciple you. And they'd be like, well, you're trying to get my money. No, no. Here's the thing. This is bonus round information that's probably going to come up later in this talk. What are the three things that derail discipleship? Does anybody know them? Because there are three. They are the, anybody like Southern Louisiana cooking? Everybody heard of the Holy Trinity? What is it? Bell peppers, onions, and celery. Well, the Holy Trinity, the holy disaster for discipleship is money, family, and pride. Money, family, and pride. So I just tell people up front, if you are not attending, tithing, serving, I'm not going to disciple you. It's not because I want you here. It's not because I need you to work. And it's not because I need your money. It's just if you can't put that stuff on the table, this will never work. You're already derailed. And they look and they go, well, I can't just start tithing. I'm like, cool. What do you, what we, can you do 2%? Yeah, you can do 2%. Good. You can stay in. Keep working. Well, what do I, I don't have a place to serve. So what you do, I clean toilets on Sunday. That's what I do at our church. We have no janitorial staff. We just create jobs where disciple makers can walk with their disciples. So yeah, come clean toilets with me. That's what I'm doing. I'm cleaning toilets. Get it? So, so there's, there's this idea, right? That money, family, and pride. And so they just, they fall out and money, family, pride just is constantly happening. Does that make sense? He was next. The question, the question is, what's the third one? Money, family? Pride. But do you want the pride? Do you want the fourth bonus one? Sex. But it kind of fits in all those categories. Sexual immorality fits in all those. Sex is just a killer. Like, it is. I mean. Yeah, don't tell Amber. Okay, what? Can you do this in a distance relate zoom distance missionary whatever and the answer is yes here's here's what the date will tell you though you can't mix it either everybody's on zoom or nobody's on zoom the one person in either equation always gets lost because the t irl does not match video it just doesn't and it'll never ever work you can build zoom rooms we've tried it all so if you're going to do virtual you can do it it's a little more difficult because you can't walk with them but you just by the way, I told you we build off-ramps. When you can't walk with them, you build on-ramps. You just accept that that's where you're at, and you move forward. But, it, but yes, you can do this virtually, but it needs to be all virtual or all in real life. Is she here? Is Bobby Joe in the room? 
Bobby Joe, it took her like 12 years to get through discipleship. So Bobby Joe is in discipleship with Mark. The question was, if somebody leaves, how do they get back in? This and that. They get back in by just saying, I want to come back in. But they're told as they're getting ready to leave, like if they're getting ready to leave on their own, that they go to the bottom of the list. Not because we don't love them, but because they're opting out. So we'll get to you as soon as you get to you. Bobby Joe was in my wife's discipleship group. She can never keep up with her reading. She got cranky, and Amber was like, you got to figure out what you're going to do. Oh, I just got too much in my life. This is Tim's wife. She's one of the Waldos. She knows this story. He's just a bad husband. He didn't train her properly. Anyway, so, 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 so she opted out. It took her three years before we had space to get two, three, three, to, before we had space to get her back in. But when she got back in, baby, she was all in. And so yeah, you're always creating those on-ramps. Think of on-ramps like you think of wheelchair ramps. If you were discipling somebody and they had to be in a wheelchair, you would build a ramp to get them in your house. That's when we say on-ramps. Do anything you can within reason to make discipleship acceptable to everybody. Listen, some of my heroes are here, but I got to be honest, I don't agree with everything my heroes say. You don't go handpick your star students for discipleship. That is not what Jesus did. He picked a bunch of Go for the sick, the people who need this stuff. So make it accessible to everybody. Uh, the t so three hours. That if you're making disciples, he asks, what's the time commitment? I'm getting better at this, and it's almost yeah. over. Um, so uh, the time commitment to you to make a disciple, three hours a week. If you do six, you get to do more of what God told you. If you do nine, you're still not even close. He told you to make disciples, man. It should be the majority of what you do, right? So three hours a week actually takes way less time to do two groups because you don't have to redo your... Right. So, but anyway, hour and 90 minutes a week for them. And reading works out to about 10, 20 minutes a day, depending on the reading. So another 140 minutes, two hours. So they're putting about two hours of reading in and it's been about 90 minutes with you. Well, first, we tell you you're bad. No, I'm just kidding. Okay. The, the, the question is, he's a do-doer. Here's the thing. All of our churches are built for do-doing. Let's just be honest, a vast amount. We, we talked about this in a, a little breakout meeting. We want people to get involved because then they stay, they connect, they build people. So all that's built around do, 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 do. And that's okay, but it's just kind of do-do. <laughs> because you know the truth is that doing things doesn't, it, it's part of changing your life, but it won't. We have plenty of people who build houses for habitat humanity, right? Who only do it to oppress their boss. And there are plenty of Christians who will go through every class and jump through every hoop just to impress you because your anointing makes them feel like they got this worked out. It's not that do is bad. It's just that be comes before do. This is, this is a revelation for us. We, we knew these seven do's that people need to repent. They need to be taught. They needed to serve because it's all in the Bible, right? They needed to learn to learn on their own. They needed to get out there and spread their wings. And then they needed to fly, right? And finally, we knew they needed to either send people or go. Like, this is all biblical, right? But what we found out, it was this beautiful brainstorming session. We knew something was broken. God turned on a light bulb, and it was like every one of these is preceded by something that God transforms us into. God makes us be convicted, correct? Who convicts you? 
Oh, no, it's the pastor. <laughs> we can convict people, but our conviction doesn't last because it's emotional. When the Holy Spirit convicts you, right? You, If you become convicted, that's a state of being. I am now convicted. Natural response, if you're going to follow God, is to what? Repent. So I can tell you to repent, but me trying to get you to repent before he convicts you is what? Hard. We've, been, we've all tried this, right? Pounding those pulpits, everything. You can't. God draws them. So the B is there. And then you repent, you start getting taught, and you become enlightened. You become enlightened, you learn more stuff. By the way, the second biggest fallout happens right here. Just so you know, this is where most church plants start. They get smart and they become 18-year-olds spiritually. And they're like, I know. You're smiling like you know about this. Like, <laughs> like I know everything. And it's your way's not the only way. You're just old. I'm 30. We got some new ideas. And, right? You've seen these people in churches and spiritual life. This is the second biggest place you see people fall out. All of a sudden, they kind of get enlightened, which is cool. But, but uncontrolled, it's what? So they become enlightened, and then what happens? They become called. You watch this, right? They want to just, what can I do? Where can I go? And the call may be a little, but it's not you. This, don't ask them. This is, if you just let this happen, people as they spiritually mature will say, I want to do, I want to go do something. They really want to serve because that's a natural maturity process. I have been given. I am spiritually healthy. What is natural to do? You give back, right? You guys, in this I know, it's like, it took you 12 years of research. Yes, it did. It's pretty obvious, isn't it? So now, all of a sudden, they want to serve, and they want to learn more. We've started the pump. They want to learn more. What they need to do is to learn to learn, because we need to get out of the equation. Once we do that, all of a sudden, we have this person who's become prepared. They've made it through this heady little phase. They're enlightened, right? But now they're learning to learn. They've gained some humility through service, and they become this prepared person. I equate this to they've walked for 40 years in the desert, and now God says to them, Joshua, consecrate yourself. We're going to go do something big. This is a huge turning point where it turns from a lot about me to really about him and about everything else. This is a natural. You guys know these stages of maturity, right? You've seen them. You've never seen them this way, maybe. So when they get that and they're all in, now they want to what? Teach me what I got to do, right? So Jesus took him. He put him in residency. He sent him off into missions with supervision. He told them to preach with supervision, right? And then he said, hey, you're totally qualified. You're in charge, and he left. He left us to do it. And then there's this thing that happens, right, where when you actually start doing this, you become driven, servant-driven. Do you guys know what I mean by, are all these, I'll let you ask in a minute. If these terms aren't clear, let me tell you what servant-driven is, though. Servant-driven is butlering. Do you know, butling, sorry, that's a word. Did you know that? If you're a butler, you buttle. If you're a professional butler, you're a very proud person. This is not servitude. This is something you've been called to do. And so what does a butler do when there's nothing to do? 
They wait. And they are perfectly content waiting for their boss to say, ding, ding, tea. In the meantime, they do side work. They straighten up things. They organize things, whatever. But they're perfectly content being a servant. That is what servant-minded doesn't mean. I'm going to go do stuff. Servant-minded means this. I am fine, totally at peace, standing outside God's door. And if he never calls, I will find my contentment in standing outside God's door because he's right in there. But I'm ready when he calls. It is, it's beyond surrender. It's beyond the surrender of consecration. It's now this beautiful thing where there's nothing better than to serve you. Even if my service is nothing. I have become a servant. Do you see that transformation? And then kingdom-minded. There's no way to become a servant of the king. You guys know this, right? And you all of a sudden you begin to realize there's a big wide world out there. And you are not trying to knock them down so you can grow three taverns church up. You're trying to knock them down so you can change the whole stinking world and redeem it for the name of Jesus Christ. And you're willing to partner with anybody, anytime, anywhere, as long as they're not totally heretical, because you see the work you're doing in Ackworth or in Indiana or in Tennessee as work for the kingdom. Not about, you're way beyond this being about you. It is a beautiful place to be. All right. Can I clarify any of these terms? You got them? Yeah. So the residency reflects where Jesus pretty much got them. And God does this in the Old Testament too. He like residencies Gideon. Do you realize that? He tells Gideon, do this, and then Gideon does that, and he says, okay, now do this. And then he goes, and go do this. He walks him down this pathway. If God just walked up to Gideon and said, hey, get 300 dudes, 300 lanterns, and 300 horns, we're going to go beat a million people. Gideon would have been like, are you? Yeah. For those of you who can't see me, I was seizing. Okay, good. All right, so but, do you get it? Would have never, ever worked. So it's this idea, it's this place where Jesus says, go out, take no food, take no money. He's discipling them, but he's now... Putting them, like, think of it like a medical resident. Okay. I'm now prepared, but I need to get out there. I'm not really ready to be on my own. Yeah. Yeah. So literally, we put people in residency. We find something that you're good at and put you under somebody who's godly, who's been through discipleship, and boy, they hone. They hone you. Because, you know, when you start doing stuff, it brings out all the, whatever hasn't been filtered out. Anybody in ministry? <laughs> Anybody feel like you're getting squeezed? Yeah, that's all we're trying to do. Any others? Yeah. So at, at which point of this would you say somebody, okay, you're now taking through to be to disciple them? Oh, genius. Okay. The question was, at what, I need a Vanna White with the mic. So the question was, at what point do we say they're ready to make disciples? Okay. I want to be very careful because I don't want to judge all that. Like I try to stay out of it. Like when they're ready to itching to, I like that first Timothy three, when, if you long to be an overseer, so if you long to be a disciple maker, I don't want to get in your way, but I want you to get beyond yourself. First Peter five, wait your turn. So what we do in our 90% model thing is this. What we do is we evaluate you towards the end of year two, quietly, secretly evaluate you. One of two things happens. You either move straight onto year three because some people can't take a break. Like they just fall apart. If you can take a break, we do a one-year gap year between one, two, and three, and you make disciples with the 
the person who discipled you is kind of out here helping, but you, you make disciples. Jamie did this. How'd it go? Awesome. She was, she did the gap year. There's other people. You did not do the gap year, did you? Yeah, I did. He did the gap year. Did you do the gap year? He did not do the gap year. So it just, you got to kind of figure out what they can handle. So either at the end of year two or after that, but at the same time, somebody's like, I want to make this. We can't stop this. I was telling some friends that I just met, like, I mean, you can try to engineer all this, but if you wait too long, they're just, they're, somebody's going to catch, but they're going to do it. They don't need your permission. But what you want to try to do is give them the resources. So in this path, between year two and three or after three, they're good to go. Even after year three, they still need somebody, though. The first time you go through this and you get in a group and, like, Mark Johnson gets in there and he's like, but I didn't see that in the theology of the third right of the blah, blah, blah. And they need somebody to call and go, how do I stop this? Right? There are ways, by the way, tips and tricks. Okay. Gap year does not count as residency. I mean, could. I never really thought about it. <laughs> test it. Somebody test it. I mean, it could. But really, we're trying to get you, we're trying to get you serving or leading wherever your proficiency might be to how do you is it just is it the expectation you set that gets you to Oh, so, so this right here? Yeah. Okay, granted, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, 10, whatever it is, right? So, oh, the question. I'm supposed to read question. How do you get them to be convicted? Like, is there something we do? Surely the Holy Spirit does it, but how do we get there? Okay, so the, the answer to that is, right, only people come because God draws them. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, 10. We, he gives us the faith. He convict, He does all of that. But is there a role we play in that? Yes, and it is... It is it is exposing them to the Word of God. That's it. You're just exposing the Word of God because it will take care of it with the Holy Spirit. We're talking about this in the next, we talked about it briefly at the beginning, but the next session, we're going to show you this Bible reading method that lets the Holy Spirit do this. And, and so they will become convicted. By the way, I love the word convinced. In most of my writing, I use the word convinced instead of convicted. Convicted carries us, you're going to jail thing. But, but here's the deal. God convicts you because he loves you to move you to a good place. So if you can interchange convicted and convinced, the point is he will very quickly convince them if they need to change. He will convince them if they're doing well. He will convince them that he is God. He will Because this isn't just about mamby-pamby stuff. They're reading the Bible cover to cover. They're going to learn about the sovereignty of God, the trinity of God, and you're never going to say a word. Just let them learn. They're going to read Genesis and they're going to go, wait a minute, who is with God at creation? And you're going to be like, I don't know. What does it say? And they go, the sun? Yeah. And if they're in year one, I'm going to leave it there. Great truth. Next truth. If they're in year two, what am I going to say? Can you connect that? And I go, what? And I go, when there's something in John? Oh, yeah, he was the word. And now I'm going to walk away. All I'm doing is teaching them to do what they're designed to do. We'll talk about more about that next time. Here's the Venn diagram. Okay, ignore this stuff around. Remember? <laughs> this is the Venn diagram. It understands the why, follows on their own, navigates the unknown. I, I can't go back and redo this. And the, when those three merge, you have what? Succeeded in your goal. Now, the cool part is, is that the 14 steps that we see these 14 intentional steps that happen, right? Predictable, happen around this circle in, in the first three years. It, it changes after you're grown up. 
but as you growing up, it almost always happens just like this. As I be, I begin to understand the why when God convicts me. And you'll watch it go all the way around this path. And out here at 14, where I'm sending or going at kingdom minded, look what's happening. I'm learning to navigate the unknown. What's an, does everybody know what I mean by navigate the unknown? Was anybody here, not here? Navigate the unknown means this. Who do I marry? Do I take that church? What car do I buy? All the stuff that's not in the Bible. You have to assimilate biblical principles to do that, right? That's inductive learning. You have to assimilate all those. When you get good at assimilating or conceptually thinking about the Bible, what happens is you start getting kingdom-minded and servant-minded because you're now seeing what? The 30,000-foot picture where this whole puzzle comes together. The puzzle is about bringing glory to God. The puzzle is about redeeming the world. The puzzle is about his sovereignty being seen, right? You see that as it all comes together. And that happens like in this year three. Does that make sense? Okay. So now can I break your brain? Though this looks very linear or very circular, it is much more like an ultra marathon. Does everybody know what an ultra marathon is? You run a, like a 50, 100 miles. They aren't really running, by the way. They, they call it running, but they kind of shuffle at certain points. But I've never, you know, gone 10. So good. But the way you train for an ultra marathon is you, you never run it. You run just pieces of it. Same way you train for a marathon. Am I making sense? So what happens is you run pieces of it. Once you learn that you can run a mile, you're confident you can run a mile. So if God comes up and says, run a mile, you're like, no problem, run. This is a progression. Let me give you the example. You ready? So if I'm a coach of a marathon runner, an ultra marathon runner, if I'm a coach of him, I can stand at the finish line and wait to see if they cross and go, we did it. You stink as a coach. You should be at every single checkpoint along the way. And you're the coach. So you should know what they need at mile 10. Do they need food? Do they need water? Are they going to need a towel? Are you following me? And so this, go back, this becomes like an ultra. These are 14 intentional moments that I am privileged to participate with you in during discipleship. This is not a pathway. It's not an assimilation system. It is 14 moments that I get to spend with you where God is working. And I know exactly what he's doing, which means if I can figure out where you are on the path, I know what's coming up, which means I can pray for you. I can drop resources to you. I can drop hints to you. Rocking, isn't it? Isn't that cool? And I know my target. I know what I'm trying to do because I'm doing what God did. And at the end product is his fully surrendered kingdom minded his. Everybody goes, well, what's the program? It's just the Bible, man. It's just, it's just let trust them, trust God and just walk with them and get them there. So when you run a ultra marathon, I said, you're supposed to remind me up nine, right? So nine right here. December 2000, what was last year? 21. December, I went back to consecrated. You went back? Yeah, because we think linear. But not really, it's just out there. I've already run through consecrated several times. I know I can run through consecrated. 
And God, I was really struggling with God about doing this because I have other things I do. Like I like making disciples and I have to teach on Sunday. And this is a lot. Not complaining, I'm just telling you, I was feeling really overwhelmed. And God said, I won't call you to anything that I won't equip you for. And I was like, doesn't really feel like it. (laughs) So in December, God called me back to consecrate and said, are you fully mine? I'm about ready to cry. So a really good question. A couple good friends of mine and elders were like, that's a good question. You ain't get your head out of your, you go. (laughs) We need to go where he says go. December, we made a commitment that for two years without question, we would accept any invitation to share any of this anywhere, anytime, at any cost of ours. Whether we emptied our bank accounts, whatever we did, because he had given our people, it's not us success, he had given them success and a full life, nine generations deep, 12 years later, provable. And by gosh, that'd almost be like not telling somebody about Jesus. Okay? So he took me back to consecrated. He also took me to convicted. He also took me to repent. But because I'm further down the maturity thing, none of these are problems. These are joys. I know how to run through conviction. Yet you're always going to learn something new. He's going to convince you. Do you see the power of this? Who, who, who's kind of a tired leader who will be a volunteer? You don't have to come up. I'm just going to ruin you from where you're at. <laughs> who's a tired leader? No tired leaders. How many people are lying in the room? Okay. You're good. We're going to call you because we're going to call you Mr. X. All right. Mr. X. I've already ruined this because I pulled the curtain back, but I would like you to tell me where you're doing on this list. What do are you on? What do are you on? Are you, are you this do? Are you sending and going? Are you doing, are you leading? Are you in residence? What do are you? Yes. Now let me ask you this question. Just dead level. No judgment. Nobody talk about him outside this room. He's Mr. X. Dead level honest. What B are you right now? This is tough. But I'll tell you, we do this with leaders before they start making disciples at the church. We assess them. We tell them what we're doing. And 99 times out of 100, leaders who are tired have been pushed to do beyond where they be. They have nothing to serve out of. Okay, that resonates with you. Now think about your people. How many people are we ruining because we do not cause them to be ready to do? Our responsibility is to get them a full life and we're destroying them with programs and busyness and everything else and we all know it and we're not bad. We're just trying to figure it out. But isn't this a cool possible solution? Does that make sense? Yeah, just so you know, discipleship, they they all have challenges. So this right here is roughly discipleship one. It's the know-it-all challenge, right, I told you about. The know-it-all challenge happens. Over here, this is when you get ready to go into discipleship three. It's called the exhaustion challenge. It's so funny. We've been doing this so long. People are all happy. And then they start discipleship three. And they're like, I'm so tired. Okay, everybody pray for what you need. I need rest. I make it about three weeks and then I lose it. 
And I'm like, it's just not that hard. But it's like, a, it's a this, I can't explain it. I don't know how to maybe find a better psychologist than we have on staff. Nobody can explain it, but it always happens. And you got to keep them. You got to cheer them on. Does that make sense? Or they're going to bail. The all-in challenge is the nine. That's the consecrated. By the way, there's a bunch of sub-challenges that go on here. You can find them in the book, ask us, whatever. They're all along this path. And the cool part is when I know one's coming up, listen to me. Don't tell them what these are. They will self-fulfill this prophecy. But you know. So when I start seeing you start to, well, did I, you know, I really think you should let me start my own outdoor ministry. And I'm like, hey, how about we come clean toilets with me first? So I'm just trying, I'm not trying to cap you, I'm trying to save you. Because what is first, I love scripture, right? Everything here is built on scripture. First Timothy 3 says what? Don't let the spiritually immature get out there because who's going to eat them alive? The devil. Dude, my job is to protect and to get you to the Holy Spirit and bring you to completion. That is the only thing that I am called by God to do is to make disciples. That makes sense? So I, I know it's coming. I can protect you. If you're failing at the all-in challenge, I just want to keep you. Like, even if you go out of the group, man, we're going to be doing coffee and everything else. Because disconnection is the beginning of death. You know that, right? Everybody knows that. Disconnection is the symptom of death that is coming. Don't try to make them stay. Just know they need help. Cool. All right. Um, does this typically run when you have a group of discipleship? Everybody the question is, do groups progress together? If they don't, like if somebody's slower or whatever, then do you separate it? Once we start a year, we start a year. There's only one way out, and that's an off-ramp. I've never seen this happen. We've never seen this happen. People learn at different rates. The first three months, by the way, of any of these phases are the critical ones. We pour a lot of coaching into people when they're first starting this so they can get it because there's tips and tricks and all. But once they're three months in, they're bulletproof pretty much for the rest of the year, statistically, and not just... So, so it's not that big a deal, but yeah... But you remember, you're discipling individuals, so it doesn't matter if Larry is moving slower, right, than Julia. Who cares? I'm discipling Julia. I'm discipling Larry. As long as we get there by the end of the year. And it's right. What are we trying to get in the first year? You're going to see this in our next session completely. In the first year, all I'm trying to do is get you to hear the Holy Spirit, raise up truths in your life. I just want to get as many truths in your life as I can. We got a whole year to do this. You don't have to do this at month two or one. In year two, I'm trying to get you to connect truths. It's going to take you six months before this becomes natural. But it's all, it's the way our brain works. It's just not the way we're raised now. We go to elementary school and we pass standardized tests and we're good. Nobody's teaching us to think. So you're having to fight against, yeah, whatever. Does that make sense? Oh, yes, we've tried every pace, and we landed on three years because it's really the most effective and ultimately the only one that worked. We are so convinced of this at this point that I would say, if you make a disciple and it takes longer than three years, somebody's not doing the work. And if you do it in less than three years, you're cheating them. Uh, and, I'm, and this is not, this isn't just Doug's, oh, we match Jesus. I'm telling you. We weren't even smart enough to think about how long it took Jesus. We just kept testing and testing and breaking and destroying people and fixing them and everything else. It just takes humans time. And don't worry about it. People, they won't do three years. So what you're telling me is they're not going to stay at your church for three years? 
Or are you saying you're going to have to entertain them for three years from this day? Dude, we need to believe in people. People go to three years of college, three years of trade school. They stay married for three years. They raise kids for hopefully at least three years. Do you follow me? They can do three years. It's us who don't believe in them. And that, my friends, is a terrible crisis. This has been proven in education. You take D-level teachers and you take D-level students. You tell the D-level students, we are going to give you the best teachers in the school system. You look at the D-level teachers, we're giving you the best students. They come together, they've repeated this test forever and ever. And what happens? You end up with stellar teachers with A-B students. What we expect is what we get. Don't be afraid to raise the bar. People love a challenge. They do crossword puzzles. How many of you got a free book from Waldo? Shameless play on our part to put a virus in your hand. And you fell for it because you love a challenge. How many people think it's stupid? You be honest. You think it's stupid? I love it. So you pay for it. All right. So... I'm just playing. You know that. I'm just playing. You're okay? Oh, you did pay for it. I'll give you something free just to make up. I don't know you well enough to... Yeah, anyway. All right. Other questions? Yes. To, uh, to connect indirect truths, you actually get into concepts. So it's, it's where I'm like trying... It's where I'm connecting three or four unrelated truths to answer questions like, who do I marry? Third... Second year is just direct truth. So he says, I was reading this thing about tithing. I go, where else did you find it? He goes, oh, Jesus said it. Good. By the way, we didn't make him quote verses and all that. We just want to get truth. They'll figure the verse thing out later. If they can recall the truth with the help of the Holy Spirit, I'm good. Yeah. Did I repeat that question properly? It's too late. Okay. So going back to this the, sucks. To the 90 minute session. Okay. You said you have a, you still last time that you have an inflexible agenda. What if someone comes in and they have like the acute situation that just arose, they're in tears, their spouse is in the hospital. Oh no, no. So that's great. So she said, going back to the 90 minute session, you said you have an inflexible agenda. What do you do when somebody's dog gets run over their spouse is in the hospital, whatever. I've repeated the question. Can I have a round of applause? I actually did it. Okay, good. All right. Good. So, so no, not inflexible like that. Inflexible in what's happening in the 90 minutes. Life happens. I mean, yeah. So like Keith's wife had a heart attack in the middle of a discipleship group. We just, dude, we just put her outside the room and we're like, it's freaking inflexible. I'm not kidding. She did. It's, and no, we stopped. We called 911. <laughs> no. Yeah, no. You, you do. You do. But you'll see that after a couple months, people understand the agenda. And when you do the prayer time, the thing they'll pray, like if it's like pray what you need, they'll be like, my husband left me. And everybody go like, oh my. And because it's open prayer time, they'll be like, that stinks. And then we'll do discipleship. And afterwards, they'll take him to dinner. But we just do what you, yeah, never. Inflexible. Follow God. We, gosh, we got to take care of people. So stop, pray, do whatever. But if you get one of those drama queens, but yeah, there is a time where you go, okay, <laughs> we got to go on. You had mentioned, uh, I think in the last one, about the 150 number. Yes. And wanted us to ask you again later. Yeah, you ready? Okay, here you go. 150, he asked, what's the magic of the 150 number? Uh, I'm going to do the fastest thing in the world because I want you guys to get everything you can. Ready? So a bunch of biologists started studying mammals. That's what they do. 
And they were testing a theory that the blah, 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 blah. Did do you ever figure out what part of the brain? He's a doctor. And there's a part in your brain the size of the blah, blah, okay, related to how many family members or me were in the community of that mammal. You with me? So like, and they found out that the smaller the blah, 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 the smaller the community of the animals. And the bigger the blah, 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 the more. And so they did all these tests. And then they were like, we have a theory. And they tested on humans. They came up with a number of one set. I think it's 147.9. 147. That was their projection based on all their data. They did not tell a bunch of anthropologists what they did. They just went and said, we want you to go and figure out what's the optimal size of a community of human beings. They went off. They came back with a number of 149. They studied Aborigines, Heterites, everybody, all around the world. So then people did more. Then business people heard about this, and they started looking at Fortune 500 companies, and they all operate in groups of 150. Like Gore-Tex, every time Gore-Tex plant gets to 150, they build a new plant across the parking lot. That's enough distance. Here's what happens. Any group of that, you can maintain those relationships. So the quality control guy, the sales guy, and the line guy are all eating lunch together. And he's like, man, the machines are always breaking. The guy's like, no wonder I'm getting complaints about stuff. See how connected they are? And so they're efficient. So this has become known as this kind of rule. So Dunbar, thank you. I couldn't remember it. Dunbar. So it's Dunbar's rule after all of this. But here's the cool part. What most people don't know, because Dunbar is a very scientific thing, is that for 30 years, they've been doing a church study globally, 10,000 churches, all denominations. And every time they do it, they find the church that gives the most, makes, raises up the most ministers, makes the most disciples, has the least division, on and on and on, is a church of what size? 150. So there's just this power because everybody's still connected. What do you do if you have a mega church? Go home, suggest to your pastor, let's disassemble it. <laughs> there are ways to build community inside community. And you can do that. And discipleship is a great way to do that. So no matter what you use, it, even if you use this, I'm going to argue, use this method no matter what, because it works. But no matter what you do, you're going to have to get those numbers down. Wait, pause. The end goal is to win people to Christ, raise them up so that they have a full and meaningful relationship with him, and they will make them. Just add it. What have your results shown differently before you did that to that end? Oh, God, horribly. Like we succeeded 20 to 30% of the time, like most people. The biggest disciple-making movement, the one everybody talks about, this movement, is 30% successful. The only exception to this is what's happening in that Sri Lanka or wherever it is in in Africa. It, it seems to be breaking that, but but you got to look you got to look over time. But in 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 the Western world and all this and discipleship making movements, the biggest ones out of Hawaii. And he said a guy once, guy was like, "I'm only getting forty percent success." He's like, "Dude, if you're getting that, you should be thrilled because we're considered number one. We only get thirty percent of our people actually multiply." And what I'm telling you is this: ninety-five. I don't know about you. I'm not willing to settle for 30%. My God is bigger than that. Well, one big denomination said, so you're telling me every, everybody's going to make disciples? And I said, 
I don't want to do this because, and they never invited me back. I was like, could you please read Matthew 28, 19? Like you're the biggest evangelical organization on the globe. And you're telling me going out of the gate, you don't believe your people will make disciples? Dude, I'm not subscribing to that. Anybody else? I mean, I love them, but I'm not doing it. My God's bigger than that. I'm going for a hundred. Does that help? Anybody else? We got to almost got to wrap up because I got to be respectful of the meeting. Okay. So his like when when we help people launch this and they're just starting out, how do we pick the optimal group size? Because there are different ones. The answer to that question varies with who you have and how fast you want to go. I hate to give you a squishy answer, but it is really very dependent on whom you are. So we try to figure out who you are, what you have, and then we go from there. Classic model, take your top 25 leaders, we'll train them, you'll disciple them. Give us your top five, they'll take five of your leaders, they'll do discipleship for two years. Super easy model for anything under 300. When you get above 500, 700,000, we call you, we actually categorize you secretly, and we call you a strategic church, which means you just have too many moving parts to just throw this in the mix. You got to let your people make disciples, but you're trying to like, so that's a strategic, that's an entirely different launch. So the answer is as varied as your church. There are three or four classic models, but you can do it either way. You can, it's very simple. All right, we have one minute. People are trying to go to the bathroom. I feel bad. People are like leaving to go to the bathroom. Get. I want you to be able to get your seats. Anybody have anything else? It is all in our book and our resources and the workshop because things are evolving. So the book was printed in 2019, right before I got hit by a car. And, and so we had like a year off. And, but we've continued. So the well made, well done is another rollout. There's stuff on the website. So it, yes, the core of it. The magnum opus is in the How to Make book. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. We've got three more track sessions to go through with Sustainable Discipleship. Hope that you enjoyed that episode. There is more on the way. All right, y'all, enjoy the rest of your day. And I just want to say I appreciate you being a listener of the Disciple Makers podcast. See ya. See ya.